You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We have an incredible guest today. His name is Winter Mead. And he truly is the most helpful person I know for emerging fund managers, especially in that venture capital area. I know this personally because one of the first things I did as I was moving into this venture capital landscape was to actually pick up a copy of Winter's book. His book, How to Raise a Venture Capital Fund, was just incredibly helpful for me and my team as we were getting our feet wet and trying to understand this landscape. There's so much to learn and there's so many pitfalls along the way that I've seen other fund managers fall into. And I really give Winter a ton of credit. He has been, uh, even though he may not have known it along the way, he has been just incredibly helpful for our team uh, to make sure that we avoid a lot of those pitfalls that can happen along the way. So Winter Mead, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tommy. Thank you for the the kind words and uh, glad I could be helpful thus far in the journey. Excited for today's conversation. You know, so Winter, one of the things we like to start out by asking is just, you know, what was your big break moment that, you know, you've achieved such a level of success in the venture landscape at a, at a relatively young age? What was it that was that initial catalyst that helped get you on this path? Thanks, Tommy, for the question. I think you're being a little too kind there. I don't know if there's a big break moment for me just, just yet. Uh, I think I have a pretty clear North Star, which is, again, being the most, like you said, helpful person to emerging managers. Because uh, again, I think you know when people are building their firm, when they're early stage, like they are looking for support systems or support ecosystems. And I've you know, tried to craft that and, and, and build that, right? Like I've gotten definitely a, a lot of help, a lot of mentorship, a lot of support over the years in my own career. Right, people taking chances on me, hiring me in the early days, you know, helping me think through concepts when they weren't crystal clear in my own mind. Like, what's the difference between gross and net IRR? How to think about crafting a narrative versus just putting together a pitch deck? Right, there's all these things that I think you learn through iteration and repetition. It's how people frame, you know, building up pattern recognition. Like, what does that mean? I think. I've been in the ecosystem now for for ten years, and I'm always trying to learn um, so that I can turn around and again just uh, you know help investors understand perspective, understand you know, what is the spectrum, and not just get one piece of advice, but being able to contextualize that advice. That's something that I'm I'm always thinking about, and hopefully uh, try to sort of put that to uh, to good use for the investor ecosystem. That's a perfect segue. You know, uh, one of the things Winter and I share in common is actually this pivot away from academics. Uh, It was so fun to catch up before the show just to find out that Winter, uh, like me, kind of has this passion for research. But we both ended up saying there's a lot more we can accomplish on the other side. And so, Winter, I'd love to go, you know, let's backtrack to that. But you're working on your dissertation, you're in business. At one point, you thought you were actually going to go full-time into academia. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah, Tommy. Uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Pretty fun we, we share that common background. So yeah, this is, this is jumping back you know, quite a few years. I, I did think the path was going to be academia. Like it, I just love learning. And 
it felt like academics was the way to continuously do that. But I, I did realize as I was, you know, writing my dissertation, maybe a few things, you know, it was really tough to tap into industry and actually get good information and good feedback, right? Everyone's busy with their own lives. And if you're coming at it uh, as an outsider, it was just hard to get the information I thought would be, you know, relevant to turn into, you know, helpful insights and helpful advice and, and strong research. So that, that kind of led me to thinking or debating like what was better, like a, a path in academics or, you know, a path to being a practitioner. And I, you know, talked it over with a few people. Again, I got, you know, one of those moments, those breakthrough moments where you get good advice, I guess, looking back. And yeah, I had some people encourage me to move to, you know, the Bay Area, to Silicon Valley to, you know, work at a few tech startups and really understand like what innovation meant from the venture capital perspective. And yeah, that was, you know, 12, 13 years ago now at, at this point. Um, and you know, I've slowly been trying to build expertise and I've always hopefully been thoughtful about what's helpful research, right? Um, stuff that actually, as people say, moves the needle and write it so it's it's just valuable to the reader. I did the same thing with with the book. You know, instead of writing a, something that was going to be used in, you know, grad school, which might be a an, an interesting tome to write at some point. Like it, I thought it was more interesting for someone that's just breaking into the field, right at the other end of the spectrum. That's very smart, but trying to learn something very quickly in a practical way. Like I've tried to take that approach to to research, and and we put out a lot of research as part of Operator, and you know we do it in partnership with other organizations, and and we do it ourselves. And again, like that that kind of leading thing we are always thinking about is you know if we put this out, is it going to be insightful and helpful to the readers, or is it just you know us stroking our own egos, which we don't need to do? I think there there's kind of a enough noise in the ecosystem where, you know, if we want to put that N plus one piece into the world, like we want, we want to make sure that whoever's reading it, uh, whoever's kind of dissecting it is going to get something like really meaningful from it. And for our listeners, what Winter's talking about when he says operator, that's actually the company that you run today. Is that accurate? Yeah. So operator is a program. Uh, there have been 62 emerging VC funds that have come through this program as of the end of 2021. And uh, we're currently on our third cohort. Um, it's run as a cohort-based educational program. Again, I think the, the gap we identified early on was that emerging managers are very talented. They can you know, drive a lot of value. They can create a lot of value. But it's a very difficult process to become an institutional VC firm. So that journey between kind of as an investor, you know, having the ability to source deals, access deals, build relationships with founders, sort of be a capital provider to founders as they're scaling up their companies, you know, that that is its own, you know, job and then, you know, if you're becoming an emerging manager and an and an institutional VC over time, like you have to build a whole business around your investment strategy and your investment practice and there's a lot of pieces that go into that. So we've created this decently comprehensive, I think it's pretty comprehensive, but it can always be more comprehensive uh, program that runs over eight weeks. And um, again, we do it in cohorts so that the people who are in those cohorts can can learn from each other. But so far, the feedback you know, from the first three cohorts is this is you know, an exceptionally 
valuable program and a, a very valuable ecosystem um, as as these managers go through this firm building process. So I love doing it, and uh, it seems to be really valuable for the emerging manager ecosystem. Absolutely. And, you know, just backtracking for one moment, I love one of the things you told me about academics and, and part of that thing that made you make the leap over to actually uh, going down the, the actual venture capital path. I think the way you said it was you realized in academics, they were studying the practitioner. So when I was writing my dissertation, what I did notice was it was, as I mentioned, tough to break into industry and actually have influence over practitioners in, in industry. And so, yeah, when I jumped to the practitioner side, I noticed that if you are doing something meaningful in that industry or in that ecosystem, like you opened a lot more doors than if you're an academic. And that was, that was an insight. Yeah. I, I had, you know, a, a while ago and I think it's been true. I think the the key point there is you have to be doing something that's helpful and valuable to others so that that door is opened. And so that basically allowed me to scratch the research itch because again, I'm always looking to drive impact, especially in this part of the early stage ecosystem and doing it from the practitioner side has allowed me to, you know, in the most recent case, like build and develop a company around, you know, helping early stage firms and the amount of sort of information and research we're kind of developing and, and putting out uh, into the world you know, for these emerging managers. Many times we'll open source it. Sometimes it's, it's just for kind of our, our own ecosystem. But that, that research, uh, it's, it's very valuable and it is like getting to the level of detail that I find interesting. Like the high level is not interesting as much as like getting into the weeds, really understanding how something works and being kind of the utmost expert on that particular thing. Um, that, that's kind of, you know, what we try to drill into, um, especially, you know, given, given operator as a company, yeah, it's very focused on education. And I think education is, it's important to be the expert when you're kind of delivering a piece of advice or talking someone through, you know, how something works. Like, uh, they're usually, especially in this world, there usually isn't like a one size fits all for how something works. So being able to understand the nuance and the differences of how you know stuff can work and should work and the idiosyncrasies for different firms as they're as they're building out, like in today's market, like that that level of nuance and detail is like incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and something we like strive to like nail down into. And it really stems from I think this high level idea of if you're in the practitioner world, and you're doing something helpful to people that, again, like that opens up information channels and helps you, uh, I think, uh, in this case, like strengthens our program to be more helpful to emerging managers cohort over cohort. You know, Winter, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, you actually worked in a couple of tech startups. And I, I think at least one of those was in Silicon Valley. Is that accurate? Yeah. So when I, I moved out to San Francisco, I worked at a couple of tech startups in line with my dissertation, which was on innovation and digital media. And again, I learned a lot at each of those companies. I can't necessarily say I was any good at what I did because it was so early in my career, but I definitely learned how the different pieces of this ecosystem work. Started to learn a little bit more about differences in the types of investors, how investors would like get involved with, with companies, 
you know, what the difference was between a good investor and a, and a not so good investor, understand the different ways in which, yeah, you could add value. This is, this is very, very early on and kind of the rise of the micro VC. But yeah, these smaller, smaller funds that were kind of running around many times, like, you know, individuals or two person teams. Again, this is 10, 12 years ago. Like that, that hasn't changed. Like that's still going on. Um, there are still teams of one or two, you know, running around the valley and elsewhere and in many other, you know, technology ecosystems around the globe. I think, you know, getting exposure to that definitely encouraged me to actually move to the other side of the table, um, you know, move to the financing side, uh, I guess the buy side as some, some call it. So what was it that first kind of piqued your interest and made you start thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I, I love working in this tech startup, but wow, I actually really, really like what that venture capital firm is up to. Was there a certain interaction that you had or what was it that got you thinking that way? I think I was already coming from the financial side, like the financial angle. And the capital allocation piece was more interesting than the sales and marketing piece. The technology development piece I thought was more interesting than both of those, but uh, that wasn't what I was doing at the time. And so for me, like looking at these smaller companies and talking to friends, like again, it was when you start to open your eyes around capital constraints, resource constraints, understanding how companies scale, understanding what is the VC model, especially with respect to financing over time, and understanding that there's just a whole world of capital allocators behind you know those dynamics. That was kind of what was interesting to me. And so the appeal at the time, and again, this is 2010, 2011, was that capital allocators could play a really interesting role in venture capital in particular, but they also have this purview of the market because, again, like they have so many conversations with so many different skilled investors and skilled founders that the perspective, people call it like the 20,000 or 30,000 foot view. But that view is actually like an amalgamation of tons and tons of perspectives, right? Like when you talk to, maybe this is less true because there's increased transparency in the market today. But you know, 10 years ago, when you talk to a venture capital firm, like they're always talking to smart LPs because smart LPs are talking to hundreds of venture capital firms. It's like, hey, what's the best practice in the market? Like, How should I be thinking about like this particular problem I'm I'm trying to solve and the LP would have perspective on that cuz they've you know seen it 10 or 20 times when if you're only working at a single firm like you've only seen that that one problem and so you know it was this money behind the money concept of who were these people that had very valuable perspectives because you know if they're being creative and thoughtful enough about it they could pull together like these wider perspectives across the industry and help again sort of solve problems at the firm level help the you know VCs understand market context and really kind of drive forward bigger industry changes if again they had the you know there had to be some type of proactivity there but you know LPs do play a really interesting role in terms of like where capital gets allocated and how the industry moves forward so it felt that was like the interesting piece it still is frankly you know 10 10 years later on okay LPs they're definitely less known um, it's harder to count 10 LPs on your fingers than 10 VC firms but they do play and they can play and they should play like a really interesting role in kind of how the future of venture is defined, right? Um, and I think 
people are starting to recognize that, I think, a little bit more. And that's, that's changing the narrative of VC in some ways. And for our listeners, a lot of you know what Winter means when he says LP. But for those of you that don't, an LP is simply a limited partner. This is the type of investor who actually invests in a venture capital fund that's being run by a manager who then goes and invests in an actual company who we kind of call the founders. So I like to think of it this way. uh, And Winter probably has an even better analogy. He's been doing this longer than I have. But I think of it this way. The, The founder has a great idea and hopefully the ability to execute on a lot of that idea, but needs capital. Well, the capital is oxygen for those ideas. And so the venture capitalist comes in with that burst of oxygen, but also with some know-how and some added value. And we'll talk more about that later. But to fund the fund, a lot of venture capital funds don't have only their own money. And so they've got to go raise some of that money from an LP or a limited partner. These are other people that want to invest, but they're not going to be the hands-on venture capital firm actually working directly with the founders for their ideas. So just a little bit of background context there for those of you that need it. I apologize if that was too elementary for some of you. Winter, so you've wrapped up your time at the tech startup and you know you really like the capital side of the world and you want to get on that side of it. What was your first move? It wasn't even my first move. Uh, credit to a friend. She was working at a multifamily office and she reached out and said, hey, there's an open position on the private equity team, you know, you should you should take a look and, and interview with some of my colleagues. So yeah, like I just got lucky. Like that's definitely like something that was luck versus proactivity or skill, if we're being intellectually honest. For me, it was just grinding at the startups and trying to make those successful. Like if you're at a startup and you're trying to, you know, do good work, like you kind of have tunnel vision in many ways. And so like I was definitely uh, an employee versus a founder at the time, but it was, it was, you know, just that type of thinking. Like I wasn't kind of like taking a step back and and looking around. It was very much just like getting lucky. And, you know, in prior years, like some things that put me in a a good position to, you know, get hired there and speak knowledgeably, like answer the interview questions correctly, but also really like the team um, where I was going. And again, like the way they talked about venture capital, they were one of the earlier investors into micro VCs, like the first wave of this change that was happening, startups were much cheaper to, therefore, the capital providers could have much smaller funds. They were kind of no credit to me. They were some of the early investors in that first wave of, of micro VC. Um, and so that was, you know, to me, like very interesting because the, again, like the earlier stage focus, the smaller fund size, the expertise, right? Like learning from people that um, we're very smart. This was an established firm that had been in business for for many many years before I got there. So for me, like learning best practices from them, um, and there's just like very enjoyable people to work for. So especially the the two that were sort of head head on the team there, Jessica and Kirk. Like I just really enjoyed you know speaking with them and saw that as a, a good learning opportunity, a good next step for me. So yeah, I wish I wish I could say uh, I was smarter and more proactive, but I kind of got lucky and fell into a group that was exceptionally smart and got the right training early on. And what was the size of the multifamily office that you went to? At the time, um, publicly disclosed, it was about $30 billion. Wow. So listeners, what 
what Winter is describing is, you know, kind of when when he talks about getting lucky, I mean, first, I'm sure you treated that friend of yours that thought to call you and say, hey, you should come work with me. I'm sure you treated that person well along the way. And um, so I'm sure it's not all luck, but great timing that that she would have the wherewithal to call. And then to have it be from a family office that, or a multifamily office, you know, just managing money for several families that had had uh, significant business sales in their legacy to account for about $30 billion. So when Winter says uh, they were able to do some really neat things, you know, when you're managing $30 billion and able to make really important investment calls, uh, it means he was getting to see really the best of the best types of opportunities that were coming around at that time and learning from a team that was, you know, really working on a lot of high caliber projects. So that's just what an incredible way to get started in the actual capital allocation space. I'm a little bit jealous, not going to lie. Yeah, I was definitely... Thank you again. Uh, you're, you're you're too kind with the words, but uh, I think from from my perspective, I I got lucky, and I'm incredibly grateful for for the training in the early days. So you're working at this thirty billion dollar multifamily office, learning incredible stuff. What made you eventually move on? There was an opportunity that came up to get closer to something on the ground floor. So. The firm I was working at was great, but again, had you know built itself up over a, a couple of decades, and you know had its existing systems. And for me, I think the interesting next step was a combination of both investing plus operations, uh, in particular operations as it applied to building a fund. And so the next step for me was just that um, I got to spend a lot of time investing, helping build out the portfolio, but also a lot of time defining from scratch a lot of the investment processes, due diligence, operational due diligence, like the things that I found very intellectually interesting and vitally important for making investment decisions as an LP. Like I got to play a firsthand role in in developing those. And so I felt like that that was going to be more of a challenge um, and a better way to learn. Um, than to just sometimes you know adopt other people's processes, being able to build them from scratch. Again, from my perspective, this is again my own my own bias and my own preference is just a it's a better way for for me to learn and actually become the expert in those things. And so maybe that was a good stepping stone to what I'm doing today. But at the time, it really was just like taking on a, a bigger challenge. And what was it that ultimately took you out to Salt Lake City? COVID. <laughs> uh, the fact that people can now work remotely and the current business I'm running is a, is a virtual education business. You know, it, the, the design there was actually pre-COVID, like my expectation was to develop this educational programming um, and make it more accessible. Uh, so I, I know there's some other programs out there, like they require you to fly around the world, you know, and that, that can be expensive for um, what I was viewing as you know very talented people who are operating on leaner budgets, and so I said, I think you can provide more intensive level of education and expertise and perspective if this educational programming were to be were to be virtual. So that was kind of that had no effect in my decision to move to to Salt Lake, like how the business was structured, but the fact that 
you know, people just weren't meeting in person for now quite a while. I mean, it just depends on where you are. Some people, some people are, but for, you know, the Bay area in particular, you know, it's just much more difficult to do things in person, um, either through regulation or just culturally, it was, you know, not, not looked as fondly upon to like put on these in-person things that coupled with like, I did want to help more people on a more global basis. And so that gave them the opportunity to join these sessions as well. And the Salt Lake thing was, you know, just more space was the right move for, uh, for my family, um, you know, in the last year. And it's been great so far. And you have a couple of little ones. Is that accurate? Yes. <laughs> Two little ones. So it gave you a lot more opportunity for outdoor activity and fun. And, you know, and I think that's part of what, part of what you do for fun. That's absolutely right. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I think driving to go up into the mountains and play in the snow for four and a half hours, like if you have young kids, that's like a, a much less enjoyable experience than driving 20 minutes to get to the snow uh, and play in the snow and go sledding or skiing or whatever you're going to do that day. So yeah, like little things like that, definitely, uh, definitely a change, change of pace. And I mean, there's a you know, pretty robust tech ecosystem out here as well. Right. And so again, what I'm trying to do isn't, you know, necessarily help just investors in Silicon Valley. Um, but it very much looks to other ecosystems, other cities, both domestically and internationally. Um, and my hypothesis is like there are pockets of talent in many, many places and there's good technology development and innovation in, in many, many places. So I mean, SLC is definitely one of those places um, that's outside the valley and, and definitely, you know, punching above its weight. But there's, you know, a lot of other places. So, I mean, just me having a perspective on that, the way I used to do it is, you know, I was based in Palo Alto for my last role, um, but I travel to a lot of other cities and, and internationally um, for annual general partner meetings, like AGMs as they're called you know, for investor diligence. Um, there was a lot of travel involved, but yeah, I think that that perspective, kind of getting a little bit of perspective, um, having been in the Bay Area for 12 years, has been has been helpful. I actually I go back there quite a bit still um, because there is still, you know, an exceptional amount of activity in the Bay Area. But it does help to, yeah, really understand, you know, at a much more granular level kind of these these other ecosystems because they're they're truly impressive, right? When you when you dig into them and and get to know them. And that is like, you know, very much part of the core hypothesis of what I'm trying to do. It's help emerging managers on a global basis. Um and and not just in Silicon Valley, even though I think a lot of best practices still do come out of the valley. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's been fun for us on the show here, Winter. Uh we had uh, Mark Mullen, who was, you know, one of the first venture capitalists out in Los Angeles. Uh, he was on our show. It's just a great episode. Uh, also had Naveen Goyle, uh, one of the first venture capitalists in Columbus, Ohio. So it's been fun to connect with people that have really said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take VC to a place that uh, it hasn't been previously. But uh, in all of those cases, we're all kind of relying on those best practices that came right out of Silicon Valley. So yeah, I know Mark. I don't know Naveen. I mean, Mark's one of those, right? Like just tier one individuals. I guess I've known him now for probably almost a decade. But when I was looking at the LA ecosystem, 2011, 2012, 
like he was already years advanced into that ecosystem and was someone that was finding really interesting investments in the early days, right? Like creating value for investors already, but was, you know, generally just kind of un- undiscovered, right? From the institutional LPs perspective. I think that's changed. Like he's definitely discovered now um, with his new firm. But yeah, it's like, how do you find the Mark Mullins of the world, you know, 10 years before they're become like emerging and becoming like just great, well-known investors in, in their ecosystems? I think that's really what, what I'm trying to go after and, and trying to uncover here with Operator. I love your focus where you're also trying to do that around the globe. We also had Max Cherznev on the podcast, uh, running one of the one of the first venture capital funds inside of Russia, really designed on investing in tech companies that can go global. And so it's been, you know, been really neat to take just more of a global outlook and perspective on it. And I love that you're doing that. I think it's going to mean so much to all of us, you know, as we move to an increasingly global economy. The better connected we can be, uh, the better that's going to work for everybody. So thanks so much for all that hard work. Winter, I'm going to move us into uh, my favorite segment of the episode, which is where I get to ask two questions. So the first question is the question that everybody wants to know. What that really means is it's the question that I want to know. And then our second question, it truly is the question that everybody wants to know. So uh, my, my first question, my personal question for you, you mentioned this idea of even back when you were with these tech startups, you started to see the underpinnings of what a good investor is versus what a not as good investor is. You know, you, you've talked along the way about adding value to the underlying companies that funds are investing in. But if we could boil it down for our listeners, you know, whether it's a founder that's thinking about taking on venture capital and they're trying to figure out who's going to be a good investment partner to actually buy into my business. This is my baby. I came up with this idea. Maybe I've been working in my garage or my basement uh, as I've had to do on several ideas. And now I'm going to hand some of that ownership off to this investor. Or it's investors out there saying, gosh, we want to make sure that we're adding value appropriately to the investments that we're making. If you had to boil down, when you say a, a good investor versus a not as good investor, what does it look like to you for somebody to be a really good venture capital partner as an investor? Yeah. I mean, maybe this is slightly controversial, but I mean, it's treating the founder as if he or she were not a lottery ticket, right? I mean, that sounds simple, but like what that actually looks like in the manifestation of an investment firm, you know, I think that's my, that leads to my bias to emerging managers, right? right size funds, very ambitious, driven, high value, like in terms of values, like what are your underlying values, individuals that really are in a phase of their career many times, like when they're trying to be the best versions of themselves and hopefully they can institutionalize that and scale with that. But that that to me is like a good investor. It's someone that has incessantly and over time built up value themselves. Maybe they have a special skill set or perspective or network and they're willing to, they understand the venture model. They understand like the idea of value creation and they want to pull their weight when it comes to like bringing value to the table when yeah, they're buying someone else's business, right? Like it's, it's not their business. It's someone else's idea. 
that other person is most likely in most cases, if not all cases, going to be like much more of an expert and always much more of an expert and just getting like more and more of an expert every day. So it's like, how do you actually come in with complementary with an E, like value to that founder? And that I think makes a really good investor. It's just the sort of self-awareness, the intellectual honesty, the ability to have you know tough conversations with the founder, um, the willingness to go into partnership with someone for the long term and really know this is going to be like a rocky relationship over, hopefully not too rocky, but it's, you know, it's going to be a, you know, ups and downs for the most part and being there really trying to creatively problem solve to kind of, again, like create value for the founder's company, which, you know, creates value for the investor. I think that that's what makes a, you know, great versus a, a not so good investor. And today, our final question is really just uh, what someone can do if they want to follow up and take it to the next step. Maybe they've been thinking about moving from investor to actual fund manager. I would submit one of the best things you can do is pick up Winter's book, How to Raise a Venture Capital Fund. It's available anywhere you buy your books. I would go check it out for me and my team at Mammoth. It has been just a tremendous resource. A lot of venture capital materials out there are very much designed for an educational audience in business school or something of that nature. Uh, Winter really did take the approach of what are the practical things that we think anybody going down this path needs to understand and know and do properly the first time around. And so uh, he truly did save us from just a world of pitfalls uh, because of the wonderful knowledge and information he's willing to share. So absolutely go check that out. If you're an emerging fund manager out there and, you know, you've just said, gosh, uh, you know, maybe you maybe you have a 15, 50 million dollar fund and you're saying, I, you know, I really want to take it to the next level. Uh, absolutely go check out Operator. You can find it at OPER8R.io. OPER, the number 8R.io. We're so thankful to have Winter here today and so thankful to you, our listeners, as well. Thanks so much for joining Beyond the Ordinary. We look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you liked this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.